to WMNF 88.5 FM and WMNF.org. You're listening to the Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, WMNF's News and Public Affairs Director. Today we're going to talk about the health effects of climate change, and our guest is a doctor. So if you have any questions about changes to the climate and how they're expected to impact your health, please give us a call and speak to our phone volunteer, John Dunn. The number is 813 813- Two three nine nine six six three. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text your questions to 813-433-0885. And you're a lot more likely to get your question on the air the sooner you send it in. Democracy Now! gave us a good preview of this issue. They were talking about fossil fuel companies hiding the fact that they knew that they were causing massive changes to the climate. And they also talked about the health effects of the climate disasters this month in California. And we just got an update there on the NPR News headlines about what's going on in California. So right now, joining us by Zoom is Paul Robinson, MD and PhD. Dr. Robinson is a neuroanatomist and emergency doctor who is a representative from the group Florida Clinicians for Climate Action. Welcome to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Dr. Robinson. Thank you, Sean. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well, and I'm glad you could join us today. So let's begin with, just tell us what your group is, Florida Clinicians for Climate Action. Uh, Florida Clinicians for Climate Action is a group of nurses and physicians across the state who are involved in educating our colleagues in medicine, but also our patients and the public in the health effects of climate change. So climate change is a term that we're going to be using throughout this interview. So why don't we define it? Uh, What is climate change in in this context? Okay. Um, Climate change is the heating of the planet uh, and everything that that leads to, which is caused by the burning of dirty fuels. Um, Coal, oil, and gas, it's called natural gas, but it's predominantly methane gas when burned, release carbon dioxide predominantly, but other uh, petrochemicals and um, particulates, the carbon dioxide particularly in the air floats up to our atmosphere and thickens the amount of atmosphere that actually envelops our planet. So the amount of blanket around our entire planet has increased since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Um, For example, um, in the mid-19th century and uh, the end of the 1800s is another way of saying it, the number of parts per million of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere was about 280 ppm. Today, that number is 420 parts per million. So there's been about a 50% increase in the size of the blanket. When sunlight passes through the blanket and hits the earth, it warms our earth. And for the last 10,000 years, we've been in a Goldilocks zone, we call it, of a nice temperature for humans and the species that we care about to survive. But now, because the blanket's too thick and we're holding too much heat inside the blanket around the entire Earth, the heat in our Earth continues to go up, both on the land and in the air, and particularly in the oceans. 
And we have records of all of this, very good temperature records over the decades. And uh, w- what are we learning about how hot last year was, for example, compared with other years and how it's been over the last few decades? Yeah, great question. Uh, 2022, according to NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, which is a federal agency, um, measured the the temperature for the entire year, 2022, and it was the sixth hottest in recorded history. In other, in other words, going back to the to the to the 1800s. Um, but other parts of the of the globe were even hotter than sixth hottest. Uh, Europe had its hottest summer ever. And we learned in September of last year that Tampa Bay had its hottest summer ever, had its hottest August ever, had its, and July was the hottest month ever. I think the more important thing is that the last eight years since 2014, have been the hottest in recorded history for the entire planet. And if you look decade to decade over the past four decades, each decade is hotter than the one before. In fact, you've got to go back half a century to 1976 to find a year in which the average temperature for that year was lower than the average temperature for the 20th century. So we're breaking records every year, every season, every decade with heat. Our guest is Paul Robinson, who is an MD and a PhD. He's a neuroanatomist and an emergency doctor who is a representative of Florida Clinicians for Climate Action. And you're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're going to be talking about how climate change is impacting people's health and what we can expect for the future as well. Uh, But we haven't even gotten to the health part yet. We're just kind of setting the groundwork for what we know about, about how climate change is impacting the phenomena around us. Let me read this quick story from AP that came out, I think it was Friday. Government science teams say that 2022 didn't quite set a record for heat, but it was in the top five or six warmest on record, as you said, depending on who's doing the measuring. And NOAA and NASA and others say that the last eight years have been the warmest eight on record. The release on Thursday of global temperature data includes several agencies from around the globe. At least 28 countries, including China and the UK, set national records for hottest heat hottest years on record and scientists expect this year 2023 to be even warmer and next year 2024 could shatter records the reason for that is because this we had been cooled by a la nina that will likely dissipate nasa administrator i'm wrapping up here but a nasa administrator and former u.s senator from florida bill nelson said global global temperature is pretty alarming what we're seeing is our warming climate it's warning all of us forest fires are intensifying Hurricanes are getting stronger. Droughts are wreaking havoc. Sea levels are rising. Extreme weather patterns threaten our well-being across this planet. That's former U.S. Senator Bill Nelson speaking there, who's the NASA administrator. So let me ask you, Dr. Robinson, uh, we're expected, because of this La Nina dissipating, that 2023 is expected to be even hotter and 2024 should shatter records. That's what, at least what the expectations are. Yes, that's true. Um, at least that those are the projections. Um, let me tell you about something that I've done uh, in the past year. I started tracking um, heat 
by five different parameters for the city in which I live, Tarpon Springs, which uh, is on the west edge of the Tampa Bay area. And uh, 2022 was an outlier. Um, doesn't matter who you look at, who you, who you read, um, the National Climate Assessment or the um, United States Global Change Research Program that was first printed in 2016, or the Union of Concerned Scientists, which published a, an, an interesting article about predicting the number of days in which the heat index would heat would hit or exceed 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, I've tracked it for the past six years. And last summer, um, the number of days in which the heat index exceeded or hit 105 was 86. That's not supposed to happen for 30 years and it's already happening. So, um, Climate change keeps moving the goalposts and, and the heat is accelerating. Our guest is Paul Robinson, who is an emergency doctor and part of Florida Clinicians for Climate Action. And we're talking about climate change right now. And we're going to be talking about how all of this impacts people's health. So maybe we should, we should get to that right now. Is climate change affecting people's health today? There are six major ways in which climate change affects people's health and it is affecting people's health right now, not 50 years from now, right now. Um, and physicians are seeing this. Um, those six ways are heat, air pollution, major storms, hurricanes, etc., vectors of disease, waterborne diseases, and mental health changes. And Sean, I can you know expand on any of those you want me to. Yeah, we'll probably talk about all of those throughout the show, uh, but maybe we'll start with the first one that you mentioned. Climate change used to be called global warming. Then scientists kind of realized that there were a whole bunch of things, not just warming that, that uh, climate change was impacting. So climate change essentially became the, the more preferred scientific term. But certainly heat is one of the most noticeable and one of the things that we notice first. So how is increased heat, hotter days and hotter cities, how is that impacting people's health? Okay. Um, of those six things, heat kills more people. Heat waves kill more people and extreme heat kills more people every year than any other weather related uh, entity, any other disaster. Um, there are three kinds of major heat illness in terms of severity, heat cramps, heat exhaustion, and heat stroke. And heat stroke is a killer. Uh, heat stroke occurs when the body can no longer evaporate, radiate heat, et cetera. And heat starts to build up in the human body, starting to basically dissolve our internal organs. It is a condition that I've seen three times in my practice. The most recent was a 17 year old football player who collapsed in August on the field during a practice, the second practice of the day in August and was brought in by medics to my trauma center. Um, his temperature was 107 and he was in a coma. Uh, we did save him. It, it took very intensive care, but we did luckily save him. Um, but heat stroke is a killer. It is 100% fatal if untreated, and it's anywhere from 30 to 80% fatal if treatment is delayed, as it had been in his case, it wasn't recognized. 
the treatment for heat stroke is to immerse people in an ice bath. Um, other first aid for heat illness is to put ice packs in the neck, in the armpits, in the groin, wet people down and turn on fans. This is first aid for heat illness. But heat stroke is a condition in which people are confused or seizing or in a coma. Their temperature is 104 or higher. Uh, and their heat, their skin is usually warm and dry. Heat exhaustion, which is far more common, but can progress to heat stroke if it's not treated, uh, usually involves confusion, sometimes abdominal cramps, um, nausea, uh, weakness. And that can be treated by simply moving to a cold area and giving liquids or air conditioned area and giving liquids. Heat cramps is just what it sounds like. It's cramping in the arms and legs because of heat. But heat does a lot of other things to the human body. Um, that 17-year-old boy was at risk because he was an athlete in the heat during the summer. Children under the age of five and adolescents are particularly at risk from heat-related illness. And in the younger children, heat can lead to infectious disease, lung disease, diarrhea, dehydration, kidney failure, etc. Before babies are even born, it can cause stillbirth, small for gestational age babies, and infant death. Um, in adolescence, typically it causes just what we talked about, heat exhaustion or heat stroke, heat cramps, etc. And in older people, heat can precipitate um, emergencies from underlying chronic disease like heart disease, heart attack, irregular heartbeat, heart failure, etc. can also precipitate stroke, um, can cause dehydration, kidney failure, etc. respiratory disease, of course. It takes a lot of energy for the human body to get rid of heat. And so older people who have chronic disease or are just old uh, have difficulty with the increased heart demand that heat requires to get to dissipate, get rid of heat. Um, and they can dehydrate. Uh, the, the amount of sweat that you can get rid of, even in young healthy individuals, is one to two quarts an hour. So it's very easy in the worst heat conditions to become dehydrated or have what we call electrolyte imbalance. The chemistry of your, your blood gets disrupted. Our guest is Paul Robinson, who is an MD and a PhD. He's a neuroanatomist and an emergency doctor. He's representing Florida Clinicians for Climate Action, and you're listening to WMNF Tampa Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. Dr. Robinson, we're going to go to the phones in just a second to take a, a listener sure. question, if you don't mind. Um, before I do that, let me give out the number again. It's 813-239-9663. If you'd like to ask a question or join this conversation, you can also text 813 or email dj at wmnf.org. And uh, before I uh, get to the DeAndre's call, I'm going to point out that the website States at Risk says that Florida currently has an average of 25 dangerous heat days per year, but by 2050, it's projected to see 130 days like that. That's more than any other state. So that's just kind of uh, wrapping up our conversation about specifically the health effects of heat due to climate change. So let's now go to DeAndre. Thanks for joining us, DeAndre. What would you like to say? 
Uh, good morning, and thank you for taking my call. I just hope to learn one thing, oh, a couple things. One, what forum uh, outside of uh, this, this, this uh, broadcast might be available to interact with uh, professionals in this field to, to ask questions? Um, so, you know, but yeah, that's it. That's one question, actually. And then the other is, um, and, and what, how do we get away, is it important that we get away, isn't it important that we get away from uh, discussing climate change as the problem or the main problem and getting into, like, externalities and pollution, uh, more so as opposed to just climate change itself? I feel like that's a problem where it, we shift away from, those maybe responsible, those directly responsible when talking about the, the overall issue. DeAndre, thank you for those questions. Let's see what Dr. Robinson has to say. Those are very good questions. Thank you very much. Um, yes, air pollution is part of the problem, of course. Those dirty fuels that I talked about, when they're burn, burned, they cause air pollution. And as I mentioned, air pollution was the number two way in which climate change is affecting people's health. Um, the heat, just to, just to pull things back together, heat increases air pollution by multiple mechanisms. Heat increases smog and ozone. Heat increases the amount of pollen that is released by plants. And our pollen season is now two weeks longer than it was in 1970. Um, heat predisposes to wildfires. Uh, can't think of a more polluting uh, uh, entity than wildfires, and they're increasing. Our wildfire season in the western United States is now year-round. It's not a season at all. And those plumes of, of smoke um, from the wildfires go all the way across the United States. Um, but I think what the caller is getting to is when are we going to talk about the industries that, because of their uh, behavior, are, are causing pollution? And those are part and parcel of the same question. Burning fossil fuels is the major problem. De um, deforestation is another major problem. Unsustainable agriculture is another major problem, but the fossil fuels that we burn for energy to run our vehicles, our lawnmowers, our buildings, our homes are the problem. And the faster we convert to clean energy, I mean, this is, this is the, the sunshine state, and yet 75% of our energy comes from burning methane gas. That doesn't make any sense. Um, his other question of what entities can he interact with, if I understood the first question, um, go online to the EPA and, and look at what they say about uh, climate change, what they say about things that individuals can do and things that communities can do or go online with the medical society consortium on climate and health which is a national entity that i'm a member of it represents more than half a million physicians across our country and there you will find education for physicians and for our patients and read the the uh, the various information that you have, or go online to you know my Florida group, Florida Clinicians for Climate Action, which is 
we're the Florida branch of, of, the, of the Medical Society Consortium and read what we've put online. Well, thanks for that call, DeAndre. And you're welcome to call in as well, 813-239-9663. Paul, Dr. Paul Robinson is our guest. He's with Florida Clinicians for Climate Action. So far, we've talked about heat and we've talked about air pollution. Is there anything more that uh, you want to say about air pollution and its effects on health and regarding climate change before we move on to the next big branch of effects? Uh, just one thing. The Evans Road fire in North Carolina burned for three months. Um, some colleagues in, published an article in emergency medicine annals that showed that the number of visits to emergency departments downwind versus upwind went up by 50% after that. But the number of visits for heart disease and stroke also went up by 50% because the particulates, particular PMs 2.5s, which are tiny, get all the way down to the bottom of the lung. They are produced by uh, or part of wildfire smoke, and they can go into the bloodstream and reach other organs in the body. Our guest is Paul Robinson, who's an MD and PhD, a neuroanatomist and an emergency doctor. We're talking about the climate impacts to health. And Dr. Robinson is the representative of Florida Clinicians for Climate Action. Well, you you mentioned that with climate change, with the changing climate, with this disruption to climate from human-caused sources, that vectors of diseases will, will increase. How will that impact our health? It already is. Um, the amount of bacteria in our water, uh, the amount of toxic algae, um, et cetera, are increasing, as are the diseases that they cause. Um, that's the waterborne disease. Um, more specifically, the vectors of disease, I'm mostly talking about um, ticks and mosquitoes. Uh, the, the geographic distribution of the black-legged tick or ioxides has doubled in the past 20 years. And Lyme disease, the incidence of it has doubled. And the number of uh, months of the year in which Lyme is a problem has increased. It now is from May through September. The geographic distribution of mosquitoes like Aedes, Aegypticus, and Elbopictus has progressed as the temperature has increased up the eastern seaboard. And these mosquitoes carry Zika, Dengue, West Nile, and yellow fever. So the incidence of those diseases is of course increasing. And when the weather's hotter, those mosquitoes bite more often and our blood is their food. I'm looking at a, the website of the World Health Organization and they have a graphic here and it mentions that there's an increase in a term that I'm not familiar with, but I, I might guess that it has something to do with uh, humans catching diseases from like farm animals, zoonoses, is that the word? And, and what, what does that have to do with climate change? Zoonoses is exactly what you said. They're diseases that we catch from other animals. Uh, COVID-19 is beyond a reasonable doubt, a zoonosis uh, that 
came from bats in southern China. There may be an intermediary animal, a civet cat or something else, and then transferred itself into humans. As we increase in population, but more than that, as we move into places where traditionally wild animals only lived, we come in contact with their diseases. Ebola is another zoonosis. Um, influenza, the various kinds of influenzas are zoonoses from wild birds, from pigs, etc. And I don't know, you mentioned waterborne diseases, but is there more that, that you can say about how we might expect waterborne diseases to spread more rampantly or become more of a problem in a future that has uh, more and more climate disruption? Yeah, the prediction for the southeastern United States, Sean, um, and Florida particularly, is not to have a wet season and a dry season, which we're used to but to have drought followed by deluge. Um, and when that happens, when there's drought, as, as occurred in 2016-17 in the Tampa Bay area, the earth compacts. And when the rains come, as they did in June in 2017, the earth doesn't absorb as well and the, and the water runs off, carrying um, pet droppings, for example, and um, pesticides, herbicides, but more importantly, fertilizer into our water. Well, the runoff of the droppings um, increases the growth of bacteria in our water. The runoff of the other chemicals increase the growth of toxic bacteria, like blue-green algae and probably red tide. Um, but warm air holds more moisture than cold air. And so as the earth warms, the clouds hold more moisture. The air holds more moisture. And when, when it rains, we're seeing more severe uh, thunderstorms, not just hurricanes, but thunderstorms and, and downpours. In 2016, there was a thousand year flood in Louisiana. It rained in sheets for days. Well, I mean, just ordinary rainstorms are carrying more water. And so there's more runoff. And so we're seeing examples of flesh-eating bacteria, of E. coli, of salmonella, but also of blue-green algae and of other um, and other microorganisms um, that cause other waterborne disease. What about malnutrition and foodborne diseases, and will that be impacted by climate change? It is being impacted. Um, as the amount of carbon dioxide in our air increases, the amount of protein that certain food plants, barley, wheat, et cetera, produce relative to starch goes down. The amount of zinc and iron that those plants produce goes down. And those lead to malnutrition. In addition to the fact that, you know, drought conditions and storm conditions make it hard to harvest crops in the normal in normal ways. So far, we've talked about general impacts to human health in general, but what about children's health? It has is climate change expected to impact or is impacting now the health of children? It is. Um, allergists are noticing more allergies. Um, 
pollen because of increasing CO2 is more allergenic than it was in 1970. Um, the incidence of asthma is increasing. And uh, climate change is increasing the risk of respiratory disease in general in children. One World Health report, um, well, more than one actually, uh, showed that worldwide, children are suffering about 88% of the health impacts of climate change. As I said before, uh, increasing heat can impact babies before they're even born and can lead to small size and stillborn and infant death. Our guest is children Paul. Are particular, I'm sorry, children are, are also susceptible um, because their systems don't regulate, this is just one example, don't regulate heat as well as older people's. Our guest is Paul Robinson, an MD and a PhD. He's a neuroanatomist and emergency doctor who is representing Florida Clinicians for Climate Action. You're listening to WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. I'm Sean Canan. I'm the host of WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. Today, we're talking about how climate change impacts health. And we haven't talked, we've talked about physical health a lot so far in this conversation. We haven't really talked so far about mental and psychosocial health. What can you say about those, the impact of, of climate change on those things? Uh, with increasing heat, typically comes increasing aggressiveness, anger, violence, and crime. Um, People who have been through disasters like um, major hurricanes are impacted. It increases uh, the incidence of PTSD, anxiety, depression, and suicidality. Um, I worked in a trauma center in a city that was a relocation area for some of the uh, people from Katrina. And these people were bereft. I mean, they'd lost everything. And they didn't know where to go for medical care. They didn't know where to go for, for help. Some of them had lost family members or didn't know where they were. Um, and then Hurricane Rita came over our head. I mean, he came over our city and terrorized these people all over again. Uh, one study showed that women who had been relocated from Katrina, for example, were 78 times more likely to attempt suicide than people of the same age in the same part of the country who had not been through that experience. Children, I mentioned the thousand-year flood in Louisiana in 2016. A year after that experience, school children had to be comforted when there was just a minor rainstorm. The Tampa Bay Times reported something similar for eight months after Hurricane Michael showed school children in the panhandle needed comfort when again, there was just a rainstorm. So these experiences particularly impact children, but they impact everybody and they stay with you. 
We're talking about climate change and how it's impacting health on 88.5 FM WMNF Tampa. I'm Sean Canan. I'm the host of WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. It's 1037 in the morning. Dr. Robinson, I, I think I told you I'd let you go by now, but do you have a few more minutes to hang out and, and ask answer some questions? Sure. Okay, great. Thanks. So I'm, uh, I'm looking at this World Health Organization website again. There's a graphic there and it talks about vulnerability to climate change in a health perspective. And there's this one part of the graphic that, that lists vulnerability factors. So these types of people um, or are more vulnerable perhaps to health effects from climate change. There are things like demographic factors, geographic factors, biological factors and health status, sociopolitical conditions and socioeconomic factors. So how would those impact how people's health are being affected by climate change? Um, Poor people are disproportionately affected by climate change. Um, They tend to live closer to power plants and closer to their um, pollution. They also tend to live closer to major highways and the pollution from major highways. In fact, um, Pinellas County, where I live, is tied for the second worst in the state. Miami-Dade in that area is worse in terms of the number of people in our population who live within a certain proximity to major highways. That increases your risk of lung disease from air pollution, but also all the other things that air pollution can cause, and there are many. One thing we haven't mentioned um, and should, the people who are susceptible most to climate change and heat particularly, uh, we mentioned children, I mentioned older people, That also includes people who work outside and athletes. We did mention them. Um, Again, the Union of Concerned Scientists published an article a couple of years ago on the impact to outdoor workers of increasing heat. And they they have a, a graphic that we can access online that You can look at your individual uh, national congressional area. For example, um, the the 14th uh, congressional area in Florida, which is probably where you are. uh, The projection is that by the middle of this century, there will be a loss of at least $600 million um, because people simply can't work outside because of the heat. In the 15th congressional district, which is parts of North Hillsboro, I believe, the projection is a loss of a billion dollars, and that's every year. Uh, there are about 32 million people in the country who work outside. And outdoor workers, farm workers, construction workers, first responders, they're about 35 times more, more likely to die of heat-related illness than the rest of us who like you and I right now are working inside. Um, this is this is a significant concern as well. We're going to talk about solutions and how people can protect their health in just a second. But before we get to that, I want to go to a dust up that that happened earlier this month about gas stoves. And to set that up, let's listen to this AP story. It's just a few seconds long, but let's hear this. And then we'll be right back to talk with Dr. Robinson about what he thinks about gas stoves and climate change. 
The White House says President Biden would not support a ban. And the head of the Consumer Product Safety Commission says no such ban on gas stoves is in the works. The controversy is fueled by an interview with a CPSC commissioner, Richard Trumka Jr., who expressed concerns about toxic chemicals being emitted from gas stoves. After saying that products that can't be made safe can be banned, Trumka had to walk that back in a tweet to say that he was talking about new products and that the safety commission is not coming for anyone's gas stove. Some GOP lawmakers on social media blasted the White House, with Ronnie Jackson saying about his stove, they can pry it from my cold, dead hands. Jackie Quinn, Washington. Okay, so Dr. Robinson, what's that all about, about gas stoves and health and uh, whether the government is coming to take our stoves? Yeah, the government's not coming to take our stoves. Um, What Richard Trumka Jr. was saying, as as he did walk it back, is that he was talking about new construction. Um, nobody's talking about taking away existing stoves. Uh, the governor of New York, I think it's Kathy Hochul, just recently suggested that they eliminate new gas lines in new construction. But what they're talking about is the pollution indoor that's caused by gas stoves, uh, whether they're methane gas or propane gas, they give off hydrocarbons. In the case of gas, um, methane gas, it's methane, but also carbon dioxide, uh, nitrous oxides, and particulates. And those are present in the air even when the stove isn't being used. So because they cause indoor air pollution, they pose a risk particularly to children. And there's been a recent article published that I think Trumka referred to that showed that about 12 to 13% of new cases of asthma um, are attributable to indoor stoves. I don't think, as the Tampa Bay Times recently said in an editorial, that it's they're in huge use in Florida. They say about 9%. But I think the important takeaway here is that people recognize that there is some indoor air pollution associated with gas stoves and they need as individuals to decide, you know, is it worth having this thing in my house? If I have children in my house, you know, that's an additional concern, but people like gas stoves, I've used them in the past. They're nice to cook with because you can control the heat precisely, but it is a device that increases the amount of air pollution in your home. Nobody's talking about taking away stoves out of people's homes. Our guest is Dr. Paul Robinson, a neuroanatomist and emergency doctor who's a representative of Florida Clinicians for Climate Actions. So let's start to talk now about some solutions. What can communities do to prepare for things that we expect to increase as climate change effects get worse and worse, things like heat waves, flooding, and hurricanes? How can we prepare? Uh, let's start with heat, since that where we, we started the conversation with heat. Um, plant trees. Um, plant green roofs. Green roofs not only cool the air, they also clean the air. Trees don't just provide shade. They're, the little openings on the underside of their leaves release water vapor, which cools the air. They also filter and, and clean the air. Um, consider hydration stations, 
consider cooling stations and cooling areas for people in your communities that perhaps don't have air conditioning or when there are blackouts uh, because of excess use of, of, of energy and people can't access their air conditioning. Um, there are many suggestions online on the EPA website, just as one example. Uh, interestingly enough, it was informative to read in today's Tampa Bay Times about the Tampa Bay Regional Planning Council's resiliency plan that they passed apparently in November. I haven't seen it, but uh, one member of the council, uh, Sean Sullivan, I believe his name is, said that they were going to share the information with other municipalities uh, around their area. I would say uh, cities, municipalities, communities need to face the reality that hurricanes are getting more powerful and make sure that their population is educated about when to evacuate and where to evacuate and that evacuation stations are close enough and that they have uh, evacuation plans for people who have difficulty with mobility. If you live in a community that has a sustainability uh, plan, and many do, um, read it, become familiar with it, and participate in the actions that are recommended in the sustainability plan. In Tarpon Springs, we're faced with a problem of flooding. Um, we're about, on average, I think three feet above sea level, so flooding's an issue in our city. We have looked at flooding that occurs in our bayous and looked at various solutions. The plan now is to use a combination of both man-made materials and a living shoreline to raise the shore of our bayous and prevent flooding. I would recommend people get involved in that. Other things that individuals can do, consider solar panels, consider moving away from the use of fossil fuel to cool your home. Consider moving to an electric vehicle. We did that three years ago when one of our vehicles got totaled in a, in a car wreck and it's been the best vehicle we've ever owned. They're not cheap on the front end, but in the long run, they're much cheaper than fossil fuel vehicles. Um, as individuals, consider getting rid of grass and consider replacing it with Florida native ground cover and Florida native plants. You don't end up having to mow the stuff. You don't have to waste gasoline when you're in your lawnmower. You don't have to throw chemicals at it. Doesn't take as much water, doesn't take as much maintenance and it pays dividends in terms of butterflies and hummingbirds and songbirds. There are lots of things that individuals can do and there are lots of things that communities can do. Um, and several communities in Florida have begun this process. Perhaps the most important thing since fossil fuels are the issue, urge your community, community work with your community to join Ready for 100 and declare when you're gonna go fossil fuel free or at least carbon neutral. Our guest is Paul Robinson, a neuroanatomist and emergency doctor who's representing Florida clinicians for climate action. And Jeff writes in and he says, from an internet search, I find a claim that by 2050, 
90% of electric generation will come from renewable energy. Is this true? And would that help the climate situation? Are the right steps being taken now? And can the problem be fixed quickly enough to avoid any type of catastrophe? Thanks for that question, Jeff. That's a great question. Uh, the answer is, I wish that were true. Um, we're moving in a direction of renewables, but we're not moving fast enough. Um, the it, Last year, uh, we emitted something like 36.6 gigatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. The year before, we emitted 1% less than that, but still in the range of about 35 gigatons. A gigaton is a billion metric tons. That's the same weight as 10,000 fully loaded aircraft carriers. That's a lot of carbon dioxide. We had a slow year relatively in 2020 because of COVID-19, but the next year we went up by 6%. The world is not moving away from fossil fuels anywhere near fast enough. If we continue to burn them as we are, then the generations that follow us won't have a healthy life. They just won't. If we burn all of the fossil fuels that we've identified as available to us on the earth, the seas will rise 230 feet. That's a low estimate. So that, to get back to his question, we have the technology and we have the knowledge to do that. It takes the political will and it takes the willingness to spend the money to move to a cleaner system. Well, thank you for that question, Jeff. And just to wrap up the, the point that you talked about, the Tampa Bay Times article that was published online today, I, I have about two or three paragraphs from that that I wanna read right now. In November, the Tampa Bay Regional Planning Council presented a document four years in the making. It's called the Regional Resiliency Action Plan aimed at strengthening the region against extreme weather. Now the council will tour the region in the new year and ask governments to adopt the plan. The plan is divided into five chapters that outline 10 goals. The first is making community resilience efforts a top goal for public officials. The plan suggests teaming with local and national scientists to pinpoint climate change indicators and monitor them. Them. And th th this goes on to say that the coalition will continue their previous working groups that focus on goals like clean energy, clean shorelines, and will add more. So uh, any anything else that we should look for in that regional resiliency action plan? I'm looking to read it. I haven't seen it yet. And I, I am looking to see how uh, communities across our area interface with it. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Dr. Robinson. Thank you, Sean, for inviting me. Thanks for coming. Uh, and you're welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Paul Robinson, MD and PhD, is a neuroanatomist and emergency doctor who is representative of Florida Clinicians for Climate Action. You're listening to WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. We're going to take a very quick music break, and then we'll turn, it, turn to other Florida news. So stay with us. A little bit.
bit of instrumental Beatles for you this morning. And you're listening to WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. Before the end of the show, I want to get to this story that came out of WFSU in Tallahassee. Governor DeSantis is asking the Florida Supreme Court to convene a grand jury to investigate possible misconduct related to COVID-19 vaccines. So this story is from a couple of weeks ago, and we'll have an update in just a minute after the story airs. In the announcement, the governor was joined by Florida's Surgeon General and a group of professors and doctors. Gina Jordan has this report that says that they all question how well the COVID-19 vaccines work and whether adverse health reactions have been accurately reported. Here's Gina's story, and then afterwards, we'll get an update on, on the progress of this story. You know, it is against the law to mislead and to misrepresent, particularly when you're talking about the efficacy of a drug. Uh, we see just the other, uh, just recently, Florida got $3.2 billion through legal action against those responsible for the opioid crisis. This time, Governor DeSantis has his sights set on shots doled out during the pandemic. The grand jury petition seeks an inquiry into pharmaceutical executives and pretty much anyone connected to the manufacture and promotion of COVID-19 vaccines. The move was sparked by stories like this from 63-year-old Air Force veteran and retired law enforcement officer Stephen Ordonia. In December of 2021, uh, we got the Pfizer COVID booster. From that date on, my life has been turned upside down. I immediately got ill. I, I was experiencing uh, stroke-like symptoms. Well, this is part of the reason why we in Florida uh, rejected things like mandates and banned things like vaccine passports. Stephen, what he said was, well, he got the, the booster because he was gonna travel. DeSantis listened as Rodonia and others laid out debilitating, ongoing symptoms that they blame on COVID-19 vaccines. The governor's grand jury petition disputes statements about the vaccines made by the Biden administration. DeSantis plans to convene a public health integrity committee that will assess recommendations and guidance that have come from federal entities like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Stanford University professor Jay Bhattacharya is expected to be part of that committee. We have had tremendous uh, destruction of the confidence that people have in public health, and in, and in science itself. Bhattacharya served as a witness for the state in a high-profile lawsuit over forced masking in public schools. He was also a witness in a separate challenge over the reopening of schools early in the pandemic. The vaccines, I do believe, reduce the mortality risk from getting COVID. And for those who have a high mortality from COVID, especially older people, it may have been justified. But the right way to use it is as a medical product where you tell people, go talk to your doctor, and then decide if it's right for you. Separately from the grand jury, State Surgeon General Joseph Latipo says he will lead a study with the Florida Department of Health and the University of Florida to explore deaths that happened soon after vaccinations. We are initiating a program here in Florida where we will be studying the incidence in surveillance of myocarditis within a few weeks of COVID-19 vaccination for people who die. Myocarditis is a condition that causes inflammation of the heart. In October, the state health department issued an advisory against vaccinating males between the ages of 18 and 39 because of the incidence of cardiac-related death soon after getting the shots. 
While more cases of myocarditis occurred after COVID vaccination than expected, especially in young males, Dr. Mobin Rathor told us last March the occurrences are very small. Rathor teaches at the University of Florida's Medical School in Jacksonville. You know, millions and millions of doses of this vaccine has been given, and myocarditis has not come out to be as a major issue. I won't say it doesn't happen. It does. But I think the the risk, any risk that the vaccine may pose because of myocarditis is so small compared to the benefit the vaccine provides. In August, we heard from Dr. Julie Morita, a pediatrician and member of a CDC advisory committee. She stressed the vaccines can protect everyone from death and severe illness. The COVID vaccine has really been demonstrated to be safe and effective. We've had over a year, almost two years worth of experience with it with millions of people who've been vaccinated. The Associated Press reports pharmaceutical companies funded studies of their COVID-19 vaccines. Those studies were published in peer-reviewed journals, and federal panels reviewed data on the safety and effectiveness of the vaccines before approving them. I'm Gina Jordan. And since that story was produced, the Florida Supreme Court did approve the request by Governor DeSantis to impanel a statewide grand jury to investigate alleged wrongdoing related to COVID-19 vaccines. And I should say that while DeSantis has focused on issues about transmission, the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says vaccinations help prevent serious illnesses and deaths from COVID-19. And it goes on to say the website on the CDC says COVID-19 vaccines are effective at protecting people from getting seriously ill, being hospitalized and dying. The federal agency says that vaccination remains the safest strategy for avoiding hospitalizations, long-term health outcomes and death. So we will kind of pay attention to what the Supreme Court is doing there, uh, looking at that has been impaneled a statewide grand jury to investigate alleged wrongdoings related to COVID-19 vaccines. Well, I want to thank my guests, Paul Robinson, MD and PhD. We talked about climate change and the effects on health. And I want to thank our phone screener, John Dunn. You have been listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, News and Public Affairs Director here at WMNF. And I'll be back again next Tuesday at 10 o'clock. And we have a very special show next Tuesday. I hope you tune in. I'll be speaking with a group of high school students from Sweden. They're living aboard a ship that sailed across the Atlantic. And we'll compare what it's like living in Sweden with the American experience. You may remember in the past, we've had some uh, students from this ship years ago would come on WMNF just about every year for a couple of years there. And uh, so we'll talk to those students, a new group, of course, and we'll see what it's like to live in Sweden. So if you have any questions, email me, Sean, S-E-A-N, Sean at WMNF.org. If there's any questions you'd like to ask Swedish students about what it's like living in Sweden and how it's different in the U.S., I sure expect to ask them about healthcare, about socialism, about a whole range of issues. So can't wait to talk to those kids. They're, they're always bright, brilliant students. If you like the programming on 88.5 FM, please consider making a donation at WMNF.org. In this time slot tomorrow, you'll hear Shelley host Midpoint. Coming up next is Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. Their guest today is Skills Center CEO Celeste Roberts. That group helps at-risk kids in East Tampa. That's coming up after NPR News Headlines. You're listening to WMNF Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota, and Lakeland. Thanks so much for listening to Community Radio.